0: the imperfect buddha podcast the podcast that's willing to go where other buddhist podcasts fear to tread coming to you from trieste italy and bath england each episode we discuss topical issues concerning western buddhism with a bit of banter and occasional guests you can join in the fun at our dedicated facebook page and twitter feed download episodes from soundcloud and mixcloud Hello and welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, where Thich Han is making the tea and crumpets. My name is Matthew. And my name is Stuart. And this is our third episode, and today we are going to get cold tea. Isn't that right, Stuart? Yes, we're going to get cold tea today. This has uh, been quite a challenge for Stuart and I. We've been doing a lot of reading, a lot of thinking, and a lot of discussing, because let's be honest, it's a very delicate topic people get easily offended by the idea of belonging to a cult. We've also delved into the academic world and how they view cults. And we've even had a chat with a few professional organizations. Basically, when talking about cults, you've got two key terms. The first one is cult, of course. The other is new religious movement. So members of the academic world, in particular religious studies and uh, sociology, in particular the sociology of religion, generally prefer the term new religious movement because it doesn't have a negative connotation, whereas ex-members, the press, and the public in general tend to prefer the term cult. Now if you know your history, you're probably aware that the word cult Literally refers to a, a sect of a religion. It's a term that's still used in many uh, European languages in a neutral way. But for us in the English language world, it generally does have a negative connotation and is generally used by people to say that thing over there is awful. What I'm going to suggest today is that we do something quite simple. We consider that cult is a generally a negative term and we're going to use it that way today. New religious movement is a neutral term, and we're going to suggest that there's a line that runs between them, and that pretty much all religious or spiritual groups are somewhere in between those two points. And I would suggest that the problem arises when a group starts to shift dramatically towards the cult end of the spectrum, or when a group is, let's say, unaware of the fact that it is engaging in cultic behavior. So Stuart and I today are going to talk about specific groups but we're also going to talk about the fact that there is cultish behavior or dysfunctional behavior within groups. And we're going to invite listeners to consider to what degree the groups they belong to, whether Buddhist, spiritual, or otherwise, political too, of course, exhibit those behaviors. I would also suggest that we reflect on those cultish behaviours as perhaps in a way an organisational failing or an inability to manage a developmental phase within a group and its identity. Certainly issues of control, of faith, blind faith, autonomy and responsibility all come into play. Traditionally, cults were seen as being headed by charismatic figures and certainly some of the groups we're going to discuss today are led by charismatic figures. But Of course, they're not all that way. The big problem is not necessarily the the, the leader, the big bad leader with the magic eyes, you know, hypnotizing people into giving up their life savings and having sex with him, because it's almost always a him, of course. But it's also to, to think about why people actually join these groups and why people are so willing to give up their autonomy, to give up their own responsibility for their lives, their thoughts, their actions in order to belong to something bigger. That's when it starts to get interesting. Now, why do you think people join cults, Stuart?
1: I think there's a lot of reasons, Matthew, and, and it really depends on the, the type of person that we're, that we're discussing or talking about. But for the most part, the world's kind of a difficult place, especially now. There's a lot of things to deal with. There's, there's careers to deal with. There's personal responsibilities to deal with. There's family to deal with, close, intimate, personal relationships. There's balancing money. There's, there's a whole load of stuff that people have to deal with on a daily basis. In the same way that people look to the government to look after them without them having to think too much, in the same way they might look for an organisation that they can say, well, I'm going to be safe, I'm going to be okay. everything's going to be all right, so I'm going to give a responsibility to somebody who says that I'm going to get enlightened or I'm going to be free, or they're just going to look after me and make sure that I've got somewhere to go on a Sunday afternoon,
0: So Stuart, that sounds awfully like the psychodynamic model to explain why people join these groups. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there are three principal models used to consider or sort of give sense to the reason why people join these groups. They're basically used differently by the three academic groups I mentioned before. The deliberative model, this is where it gets interesting because most religious studies scholars and sociology scholars prefer that model. That model basically says that people join because of what they think about the group. It obviously gives a sense that people make rational decisions, they make conscious decisions, and then they choose consciously to join a group.
1: So that might be based off of their self-image, for example, or how they want to be perceived. Is that a possibility in that model?
0: That could be, although it depends to what degree that's a need. So the second model, which is the one you were sort of getting towards, is the psychodynamic model. This is actually more popular with mental health professionals, so psychiatrists, psychologists, and so forth. What they would say is that people get involved with cults or these groups because of what the group does for them. That is the degree to which it fulfills a need. And those needs, obviously, if we're talking about psychotherapy, are unconscious, semi-conscious at least. So in that sense, yeah, if the self-image was was needed to sort of reformulating, if the person was fed up with the image they've received from society and they see this exotic Buddhism and they say, oh, I'd like to be part of that, then perhaps they're not really clear of what this profound need is, which is to feel themselves whole or something.
1: Right, right. I see.
0: The third one is the thought reform model. This is quite popular with mental health professionals, but primarily those who've got experience with cults or ex-cult members. So what's interesting is the first two models come from people who have less experience with ex-followers, okay? The third one is actually those who engage in trying to treat or support or aid ex-followers get over their emotional and psychological and often physical wounding. In those cases, basically the idea is that people join these groups because of a systematic program of manipulation of psychological manipulation they they would perceive that as a form of exploitation rather than something that's fulfilling needs or is based on rational decisions
1: that's that's interesting matthew and uh i've got some notes written down here that that cults or new religious movements might employ to get more people and to get more people on board is to aim to affect affect recondition and program at the level of behavior at the level of values and beliefs and at the level of identity and self-image. Now, would that in any way line up with what you've just laid out there?
0: Yeah, that that would make sense. Sure.
1: Well, that's interesting, Matthew, because if that's the case, the person that signs up for whatever group that might be, it's going to mean that it's going to affect them at those levels. And those are three distinct levels. That's going to mean two things, depending on how we look at this as far as I understand it. They're going to get limited change, or they're going to be able to leverage the maximum level of change for the positive, and they're going to come out with some positive, you know, some limited positive results, some kind of positive results, or some really positive results. Or on the on the you know on the dark side, which we're kind of, I'm sure we're going to be going towards at some point this evening. I'm sure that it could mean that they're going to be a little bit screwed up, slightly screwed up, or very screwed up.
0: Yeah, well, certainly, cults tend to attract people who are a bit messed up. There's a typical list that you can find on various sites. Certainly people tend to get involved, not just in cults, but spiritual groups in general, when they're going through a certain change phase. If you talk to the, the sociologists, they'll tend to look for patterns in human behavior. And they would say that primarily people join not just cults, but religious groups, Buddhist groups in this, in this sense, in a transition period in their life. So they're looking for something. That's certainly going to be a shared characteristic here.
1: That would definitely make sense.
0: Yeah, as you nicely said, it's useful to think of these as three levels that are operating at all all times. Whereas the sociologists would tend to emphasize personal responsibility and the, the ability to make rational decisions, that's certainly an ongoing factor. And I think it's useful for us to remember that people are actually capable of making decisions. They may do so badly. They may find it difficult at times. But if we don't perceive ourselves as having some degree of personal responsibility, well, we're kind of all victims, aren't we? And that's that's really not a helpful model of the human.
1: I agree with that.
0: Yeah. Oh, thanks. The other thing, though, is to recognise that all of us, when we come to these groups, are bringing along, you know, a set of needs, and some of those are possibly explicit, but some of them haven't been articulated fully, or perhaps we're not so well aware of them. And I think if we talk about general participation in Buddhist groups, we could say that often people are really unaware of the layers of unspoken needs that they bring. their allegiance or participation in Buddhist groups in general. That possibly explains why there's this tendency in mainstream Buddhism for people to adopt these Buddhist identities rather than actually take Buddhism as, let's say, a set of mechanisms for recalibrating or reconfiguring their sense of themselves and the way they operate in the world. It perhaps explains why, as you mentioned before, so many Buddhists, they get to a very comfortable place with Buddhism. They kind of stay there. Perhaps some needs are being met and that's it. As we mentioned last week, I've got no problem with that. But I think that it's, it's, it's a problem when it's part of this sort of elaborate game that we play within Buddhism, where we sort of assume that we're all going to end up going towards the same goals. And yet people sort of are happy to sort of tread water instead of actually apply the more dangerous or risque aspects of Buddhist philosophy and practice At that point, that's possibly where there's space that opens up to people unwittingly finding themselves in 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 groups that start to exhibit more of the cultish behaviors. Because if you're unwilling to critically look at Buddhism and critically look at your own relationship with it, then you're more likely to accept some of the uh, behaviors that develop within the dysfunctional Buddhist groups and accept those as normal when quite clearly they're not. And what you see with those groups is when you start to actually think about things, when you actually start to interrogate yourself and the group, that's when things start to fall apart. Too many people, as we well know, are unwilling to do that.
1: That's very true, and it, I think that's part of human nature. I think that's a big part of human nature.
0: Is is it's, sometimes
1: it's 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 a sad thing to see, but it take, sometimes it can take a unique individual or or a brave person to to kind of step over that boundary, and sometimes it. Sometimes there's nowhere else to go but there, you know, that yeah. there are people that have made that step that have chosen it. There are people that have made that step because it's the most obvious choice, but there are also some people that have made that step because what they're doing doesn't make that much sense and they feel like they've been pushed to make it. So,
0: yeah. Yeah, and that's where the discussion gets up to an essential point, which is at what point are groups conscious of these dynamics and therefore actively engaged in manipulation for their own benefit, i.e. to keep members or to expand. Or to maintain a certain narrative that they have about themselves. And I think that's where the line should be drawn between who's responsible. Now, I think as adults, we can say that everybody's responsible. But that when a group uh, or an organization deliberately manipulates its new followers in particular, when it deliberately lies, then we start to find that the cultish behavior is becoming more pronounced and the group is becoming increasingly dysfunctional. And we're going to see that with a number of the groups that we discussed today. But just to feed on from that point you made before, Stuart, about this being part of human nature, some of the other characteristics that you'll find within the literature that cover some of the reasons why people join join any sort of spiritual religious group. I'll give you a few more of these. Uh, this is important, a lack of self-confidence. Mm-hmm. That would be key. Go on. Because if you're going to speak up, going to speak to the truth of something or speak against Uh, let's say the group consensus (laughs) you need need quite a lot of self-confidence you know it's the same in all social circles true gullibility is one of them though Stuart
1: Uh, I want to put my head in my hands right now that's a shame to hear that one
0: you're not gullible are you no no (laughs) (laughs) this reminds me of our discussion of the last episode (laughs) where we we bought into these stories about superhuman powers and all that other stuff we were gullible we're no longer gullible (laughs) we are liberated from gullibility all right. Some of the others. Well, this one's obvious: desire to belong to a group. We all have that as part of human nature, which you mentioned. This is this is great. Low tolerance for ambiguity.
1: That sounds like um, cog- the cognitive dissonance bringing its head back up again. What's that then? Robert Shaldini, If people haven't heard of cognitive dissonance before, it's it's um it's basically mental stress or discomfort that's experienced. At an individual level and it, it comes into effect when when the person or when people hold two opposing ideas this this pulls them in two different directions and, and human beings at certain level are designed to seek out comfort and they're designed to seek out um safety and they're designed to seek out at a certain level to stay within their comfort zone and so when they're given that they're immediately they want to solve it you know is it black or is it white up or is it down well what is it i can't deal with the fact that it's up and down at the same time that's just too much and in my mind might explode and so some people will scrabble and run towards the easiest option to deal with the, that ambiguity as you say matthew
0: i mean we we see this at all levels of society as well right we see it in the political discourse i think this is something that polit- politicians are excelled in manipulating
1: i'm sure they are
0: so, yeah you know that's uh, that's push push uh, you know, the sort of uh, collective consensus towards one way or the other by creating these sort of frictions and tensions. But it, of course, happens too in, in religious groups and Buddhism as well. Another another on the list here is, uh, you, you, this one will be obvious, naive idealism. Naive idealism. I think that's a characteristic of the sort of adolescent years. And I think uh, both you and I suffered from some degree of that when we first came to Buddhism in our late teens. I think what's problematic is when people don't actually, uh, let's say, grow up and set that aside for, you know, more rigorous thinking. I think that's, if you look at some of these long-term members of these dysfunctional groups, I think they hold on very, very tightly to this sort of warped idealism. And a lot of that is still links back to these superhuman ideas of enlightenment, of the figure of the Buddha, and this sort of acceptance of their teachers as being all-knowing wise, perfect beings. Three more are on the list worth mentioning. Cultural disillusionment. That's another big one, right? Yeah. We see that this cultural disillusionment basically uh, leads a lot of people to try and find alternative communities. And that's certainly something that drove me to find my first Buddhist group, which I'll talk about later. We also see this sort of frustration with mainstream meaning or the mainstream uh, means for providing a sense or meaning to life. That can lead to all sorts of spiritual searching and seeking, okay? That can lead people to get into all sorts of odd, extreme groups. And the last one, Stuart, you see what you think of this, especially as, uh, considering your your new course of study, susceptibility to trance-like states.
1: There we go. That's a beauty right there. So the susceptibility to trance, now that's that's really interesting. And before I started to look into the, into the, the various groups that I did the research on and, and what me and Matthew will be discussing this evening is i looked into Scientology and i watched a, i watched an interesting documentary called going up um, called going clear which is an HBO special highly recommended it's 2 hours long very good it's quite gritty so if you like the edges filed off of your reality so that it's nice and smooth uh then don't go near it but um it's uh it's pretty good highly recommended so they Probably not as much. I mean, they do to some degree, but not as much as something like Buddhism would do or maybe something like Hinduism or or certainly shamanism that would induce specific meditative states, trance like states and and that kind of stuff. And then, you know, group chanting, visualizations, those kinds of things. That immediately, at a certain level, if if the person were to tick all of the boxes that, that Matthew laid out there, would would make them susceptible, susceptible to joining a group that might not necessarily have their best interests at heart, individual interests. They might have their interests at heart if they're willing to go along like sheep and join in with the group. But um, otherwise, they might not be in for a very nice ride. And certainly, with some of those characteristics, they might not want to get back out. But they can delude themselves. I mean, it's, there's a possibility, of course, that a person might delude themselves in the thinking they're getting somewhere when they're just getting into a trance-like state that just pulls them deeper in the group. I mean, those would be my thoughts, Matthew. I mean, what do you think on that?
0: Two thoughts come to mind. The first one is uh, we seem to be moving towards a discussion of mind control and the problems with that concept, but also to advanced meditation practice. If you think about some of the jhanas, for example, some of them quite clearly represent trance-like states. As we know from Buddhism, they, they don't really take you anywhere. They're dead ends. And I think it's quite possible that a number of Buddhist groups basically specialize in inducing jhanas, uh, which probably contradicts some of those who are, let's say, invested in traditional teachings. But I would suggest that's what's happening. If I think about one of the groups I'm going to be talking about today, which is the NKT, the New Kadampa tradition, I rewatched a BBC documentary about them uh, about three days back. And it was awful. It was awful because the the documentary is good. You can still find it online and it's recommended, but the segments where they would sort of, let's say, give the ear to the NKT, there were always groups of these people chanting the Sadanas in English. And as I listened to it, I felt a certain degree of repulsion, not only because I used to be part of that group, but because of the sort of hypnotic, sort of bland uh, feel of that experience. And certainly I think they experience a degree of trance-like states. And we'll talk about why that's relevant to what's wrong with the NKT as the discussion goes on. If we talk about mind control, which you've got something to say, I think, again, academically it's a big problem area. And I think, first of all, it's a problem area because of the terminology, mind control. The idea that you can control completely somebody's mind is problematic, and I'd agree with that. But it's also problematic because we still lack a consensus about what the mind is. If you look at the history of cults, which more or less starts in, like in the 60s and 70s, uh, certainly the academic study of cults, I should say, you see that a lot of the history of this phenomena is legal. That is, in the 60s and 70s with the hippies and uh, free love and all that, you see an ex- you know exponential rise of small and large groups of primarily Christian-orientated groups, but also later Hindu groups, which are defined as cults. Some of these got dragged into the courts, and because they got dragged into the courts, the, the lawyers and the judges basically had to find experts, which is when it started to become a new academic field or a specialization within the three academic fields we've mentioned. They had to come up with a definition of what a cult actually is, but they also had to come up with a real definition of what mind control is. And there's no consensus. This is no surprise. I think actually a better, a better term, which you, 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 again, you'll find in the literature, is leave, leave aside mind control and move towards coercive persuasion coercive persuasion lends itself to manipulation coercive persuasion is a facet of all human dynamics I mean you think about the power play at work in again turning back to politics but
1: I knew you were going to go there I knew you were going to go there my mind was going there immediately
0: right right I mean, it's everywhere. I mean, it's even in a couple's. I've been with my wife for 13 years now. Even there, you see the same thing going on, you know. I'm out, you know, I'm coming home from work and she phones me up and she says, oh, can you stop off at the supermarket, you know, to get some cat food? I mean, it's a stupid example. I'm like, you know what? I'm tired. I want to come straight home. I want to switch off. I want to kick back and drink a beer. I want to watch some stupid rubbish on TV. (laughs) And then she's, you know, she puts on the soft voice. Yeah, but come on. We really (laughs) need that cat food. This is basically coercive persuasion, and it's a stupid example, but it illustrates the fact that it's not something that's invented by the anti-cult movement. It's a facet of human relationships, and yeah, we see it everywhere. It's an
1: innate part of human relationship, and if you look at um, something like conversational hypnosis, which I'm getting into study because it, it's a part of the, the hypnosis field, it's completely a part of... Of human dynamics of human communication it can be over it can be covert there's a various number of facets to it it's quite a fascinating field to get into and study Usually these skills are usually wielded by a charismatic individual there's some talks that Obama uses NLP in, in some of his talks and that's going to involve some of these influential communication patterns probably
0: again I think another failing in this in these three fields is that there's this desire to fix things into reliable models. Because human beings are so complex and because uh, social groups and organisations are so complex, I don't think it's possible to sort of nail all of this down to a very simplistic, straightforward model where you can define one group as a cult or not, or one person as uh, a victim or not. I think it's probably useful to view all of this as a process. I think, again, going back to what I said...
1: Like a process of victimisation?
0: Possibly. That would be part of the matrix of, of some of the factors and issues we're talking about today. I would suggest that the problem is when groups, as a process, that is, all groups are not fixed, they're, they're evolving or they're involved in processes of change and development and decision making. I would suggest that when groups specifically engage in and justify cultish behavior, I would say that's where they're problematic and that's where they're, they're more of a cult than in a new religious movement. And I would say that when they institutionalize social conformity specifically towards certain behaviors that are problematic, then I think they need to be criticized and they've moved over towards manipulating rather than being a part of, let's say, the individual's conscious decision-making process. Let's do this, Stuart. We've said quite a lot about this Mm -hmm. and it's an endless topic. As you well know, Stuart, there are lists from various anti-cult movements and websites, some more or less legitimate than others. There are long lists, short lists of some of the characteristics of cults. One of them that you've read is called the Orange List. I suggest many of you go out there and have a look. There are a hundred items on them. We're not going to bore you to death by listing them. But what are some of the items on that list that stand out for you, Stuart?
1: Off of the orangepapers.org, which is orange-papers.org, if you'd like to have a a look, there are five points that kind of stand out for me. The first one would be the use of techniques that stop cognitive dissonance. So this is going to be things like thought-stopping language or terminating cliches. For example might run across something like ambiguous quotes of it's their karma or there is no good or bad in Vajrayana or people and society or everybody is basically good, you know, regardless of their actions. And you know, an AA example, or an Alcoholics Anonymous example, might be might be you have a thinking you have a thinking problem, not a drinking problem. And then we also have the trance inducing practices. Deep states of absorption, group chanting, visualization, so on. The second one would be That the group is special, wants to own you, make you dependent, and or demands compliance, or all of the above. The third would be that there are different levels of truth. Basically, they're restricted, siloed, compartmentalized levels of knowledge. That it uses progressive levels of indoctrination and commitment as you go further. So the more you go in, the more you invest. There's a com- commitment and consistency Robert Sheldini principle at work there. You know, the more that you say that you're going to do something, orally and, or in writing, you know, the more that you kind of get into it and get, get stuck into it. So it's basically could be, not not always, but could be the misuse of Samaya or the misuse of vows in Buddhist contexts. The, there are no graduates because, for example, the path is infinite. The person would never get to the top. They never reach the end point. they never get there. So they're in there the whole of their life. They don't know if they reached the goal. There's stuff in this of, in, in the Scientology Going Clear that already mentioned. And there's another Scientology interview, although the, obviously this isn't the, the topic for the podcast, but Jason Begay's got a very good one, an interview, which is about two hours long, kind of, the, you get to see the results of what a cult can do to people. And intelligent people can get stuck in this. And he comes up with a good quote saying that the more that he got in, that the stupider he got. God, I know, isn't that terrible? It is truly terrible. It's this kind of that that interview actually makes me quite sad because he's he's a talented actor, he's clearly intelligent, and you just look at the end result of what it does to the guy, and it's just it's it's sad. And just for that graphic depiction in itself, even if you just watch it for ten minutes, you'll get a, a snapshot of what that is.
0: Yeah, and I don't know if you had this experience, but when I watched it, I was like, ha. You know, a lot of this was going on in some of the Buddhist groups that I participated in, especially my, my, my first years with Buddhism. You know, thinking about that Scientology document, and it is a document. I, I hope it gets put in the public record and gets seen by many, many people. I
1: think in the UK, Sky have got the rights to air the going clear, that Going Clear documentary.
0: You can watch it online as well, though. That's where I saw it. Mm-hmm. Illegally, no, of course not. Here at the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, we have pure ethics, unstained morality stewards. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Uh, and we, and we've, we've got the thetans coming in, and maybe we're going to mix them up with Buddhism and produce Vajrayana thetans. <laughs> well, you know what? I mean, thinking about evil spirits, I mean, there's probably somewhere in Buddhism where that sort of possession idea is going on, right? Mm, I mean, if you yeah, think about...
1: Yeah, hungry ghost
0: stuff yeah the hungry ghost stuff but not just that demonic
1: demonic stuff yeah
0: yeah the demonic stuff and this will come up uh, again when we discuss the nkt there's this uh this tradition within tibetan buddhism of channeling these wrathful deities i take when i was 19 like like
1: the dalai lama's oracle right
0: Uh, exactly that's right so there's the oracle of Dorje shugden a problematic figure and i remember meeting him when he was uh, when i was 19 you know what
1: was he was he in sainsbury's when you're when you're doing shopping
0: well that's that's just that's just poor form Stuart. No. So I remember meeting this, uh, this oracle, the, uh, I think it was the uncle of uh, Gyatso, who was the leader of the NKT. And he channeled this spirit, you know, was sort of talking in tongues and dribbling everywhere and giving blessings out. But hey, that's, that's pretty far out. That's, let's not assume that we are above some of the machinations of Scientology and Buddhism, because some of that stuff is going on here too.
1: You mean like speaking gibberish and dribbling
0: everywhere? That happens. That happens. Uh, not just to children of four months.
1: The next one on the list is is very much centered around the the group and money. For example, the group could be money grubbing. This fits into the the previous section, but you know modules and the curriculum and curriculum changes and new modules they get introduced consistently, frequently. They'll slot it back in and they say, "Oh, you have to go back to level three and redo this new." Super new, sparkling, banking brand new module that's going you know, to get you geared up and clued in for the next level of whatever. And it'll mean you're special, right? Uh, yeah, of course. It, it gives you it gives you the key to the next level of whatever that is and it's going to cost you new, more money. You kind of have to go de- back and do it. And if you're a good member of whatever that group is, you have to. And if your friends do it, then there's more pressure, right? There's upfront cash payments to obtain the next skill level, level of knowledge or empowerment.
0: There's endless justification of all this, right?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. It doesn't. It's not questioned. If it comes down from wh- whoever's at the top of the hierarchy, part of getting enlightened, or if it's part of getting free, or if it's part of developing yourself into a more compassionate, well-rounded, functional human being, it's, and it's pushed down that pathway, what choice is there to say no? I mean, there's sometimes there's
0: none. It's pay-as-you-go enlightenment, you gotta get your fix, pay through the nose. And this point backs up some of the argumentation of Buddhism as basically being in awe of capitalism, right? Because if you don't pay, you don't get enlightenment. If you don't pay, you don't get the Guru's blessing. If you don't pay, you don't progress. It's a rather sticky situation, Stuart. It's a sticky situation indeed. There's one
1: final piece on the on on that list, and it although it's the last piece, I don't think for me it's not a footnote it's quite an important piece it kind of rounds off all of those all of those points is the fact that usually in, in these groups the, the people can't tell the truth and that there certainly isn't an open an honest sense of humor that's that's really important
0: so those are two points you you raised the first one is you can't tell the truth and there's a lack of humor
1: an open and honest level of humor. So there's, okay. there's, tru- there's truth that relates to truth that weaves its way all the way through that nice number five right
0: there. So I've, I've kept interrupting you, Stuart. I want to hear some stories.
1: Let's do that. So you've already mentioned Dorje Shugden. You mentioned that you met him in the form of, what's it, Geshe La's uncle. I think if I've got my date wise, in March of 96, the Dalai Lama officially denounced the as Dzogchen as a practice. Just to put that as a timestamp, I think I was 18, maybe 19. I went to Nepal in in February of 98, and I was very lightly studying with a with a group led by a man called Lama Ganshan, who's a who's a Tibetan Lama. He's got a meditation healing place that he's, that's just up the road from Buddha's Stupa. It's a very nice place, very comfortable. On one of the days during my stay there, there was a long and drawn out pro Shugden talk. And, uh, oh dear it sounds
0: very boring
1: oh my god Matthew it was boring so the the atmosphere was really one of of people kind of sheepy people that were just really simply happy to be near the llama and and in some respects that's kind of fair enough because they've flown all around the world to be in Nepal to be with this guy that they were studying with so that's fair but the format was slightly oppressive quite dictatorial and without much real detail or content it was. I thought personally, I thought that it was strange that there wasn't much, if any, direct questioning towards the, the brewing controversy that if you look at the timeline of, of Dorje Shugden practice, that now it's hit in the BBC media, hit in mainline media. And there clearly wasn't any latitude for there being any open discussion on, on the answers that were being given. It was like they were being dictated through this communicator. It was being spoken in Tibetan and this guy was communicating it and, and basically talking it out. So not only did you not, not direct communication with the Lama that was telling this, but it was, it was like, don't question it. And there was like another layer it was like abstracted from, from the people that were listening. So I thought, you know, I'd like to get some clarity and I was to ask as to what the problem was, what this was related to. And I think I would heard you talking about Dorje Shugden once or twice before I went over there. And so I'd had a little bit of exposure to it. So when it popped, I was like, ah, I see. I had something to pin it on. You know, there wasn't really much of an internet to speak of then. So I, I I asked that question, but I didn't get anything back. I didn't get a response back that I could use. I got a very cardboard, flat, canned response that I just couldn't use. It didn't make any sense to my practice. It didn't make any sense to where I was in my life. It just, you know, that doesn't really answer anything. I sat there, kind of didn't want to, make too much of a fuss of saying that answer's rubbish or <laughs> anything like that. I just kind of thought, well, I'll just keep my head down and hopefully the talk will end soon and I can just kind of go on my way and just enjoy the day tomorrow. i go out and explore Nepal and have a look around. But you didn't do that, did you? No, no, because it went on forever and there was no end in sight. Everyone was sat round in a circle around this room with the llama at the end on a throne above everyone, looking down on everybody. And I was sat there and I sat there and I was bored. I was like, my God, I'm bored. I'd rather be doing anything else than listening to this and nobody asking any questions. So I I simply, I got up, just got up and left. But I was sat in the middle of the room and everyone's around there in a circle. So everybody saw me leave. So I did it respectfully as I could closed the door quietly as I left. The next day, I was quietly making a cup of tea in the morning. Lama Ganchin's Italian right-hand woman came up to me. She does a lot of his organization of itinerary and, and all of that stuff. She's running around with this guy and, and doesn't usually take time to stop and talk to people. So she comes up and she talks to me and she says, so, uh, you know, did you enjoy the talk last night? I said, yeah, you know, it's all right. And she said, did you get the answer that you that you wanted? And I turned around, basically, I said, no, I didn't. She didn't like that. She looked at me like I was just crazy just said something that nobody's ever said this before this is another language i don't know what i'm hearing right now and uh she just kind of looked at me and just kind of started to slowly back away. it was an interesting experience not one i care to repeat again
0: i thought it was interesting when you, uh-huh. you you made your choices about the items from the orange list because you missed off number one
1: what was remind me of what number one was matthew
0: number one is is crucial The guru is always Ah, right.
1: Number one, of course. How could you forget that? How could could you? Yeah. What's the second one?
0: The second one is you are always (laughs) wrong. (laughs) Oh my (laughs) god! And people wonder where the problem lies. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Number one, the guru is always right. That's why nobody questions. That's That's why nobody stands up and leaves when the guy is boring as hell. I don't know how many hours I've spent listening to utterly dull teachers just droning on. Dribbling away. Yeah, your story, your story resonates. And I, I imagine it will resonate with some of our poor listeners who've gone through similar pointless sufferings. As you said, that, that comes back to one point that you did mention, which was the enforcement of conformity. Certainly conformity often means silence or, or yeah, not moving, not moving physically. It's almost like a form of uh, entrapment or torture.
1: Mind didn't I mean, you see it in schools all the time and stuff, but anyway, I go
0: off Yeah, track. it's the same there, isn't it? Fix yourself, don't move. Yeah. I've, often, I've often thought as the sort of guru-disciple relationship is primarily a sort of a reflection of the father-child relationship. I find it very difficult to see it in any other way because all of the characteristics are there. I mean, whether it's this guy, Lama Gangchen, or someone else, basically you're the child, the other person is the parent, you are disempowered. And certainly you're not invited to occupy an equal space. As you said, Stuart, this guy was on a throne. I don't think there's any place for that in the 21st century. I've got to be honest. Some people would disagree with that because perhaps they like the tradition, they like the idea, they see it as a respectful adoration of this figure in whom you have faith. But to me, that just spells dysfunction. And it's incompatible with democratic models of dharma diffusion that we talked about last episode.
1: I think that's right. Uh, I feel that that's right as well. For me it's interesting it's impossible to to remove power dynamics from human interaction it's impossible there's always there's always a power interplay if you if you're getting taught something that you don't know from somebody there's going to be more of a power interplay at level than is if you know a little bit about something and you, there's a little bit of back and forth there's got to be some back and forth though when you learn when you learn from somebody and if there's no there's no give or take if there's no dynamic if there's no way to learn those ideas in a in a functional way then it's it's not good diltified stale teaching modality that he was using there it didn't engage me but when you boil it down to teaching relationships at work there is a power dynamic at work there and so for me it becomes a question of what works what doesn't you know what's more of a truthful communication there
0: and it's amazing the, de- the degree to which people are willing to sacrifice their autonomy and their common sense in order to pacify their own sort of feeling or emotional responses to these spaces and dynamics, in order to get the goods, you know, to get the secret knowledge from this wise, magical, exotic figure. I find that quite frightening, almost. I find that quite disturbing, certainly in this day and age where we've seen so many stories of abusive guru figures. The information is out there now. It's out there enough for people to be able to access it and and recognize that this isn't some sort of mystical, holy dynamic that we must somehow align with in order to react against the meaninglessness of Western society and values. It's a form of escapism, and it's a form of indoctrination into disempowering relationships. Tantra, Tantric Buddhism, which is which is what we're already talking about, has this as an inherent power dynamic that needs to be addressed. And as I said at the start, I think this is one of the failings of the arrival of Tantra in the West, is the failing to find alternative modes for exploring some of the creative and experiential dynamics that Tantra offers as an alternative to some of the, uh, let's say, more linear paths of earlier Buddhism. Maybe this is a good point for us to talk about another story. Should we talk about the NKT, Stuart?
1: And I've been holding my breath the whole time, just waiting for you to start this topic.
0: The NKT, or New Kadampa Tradition, was founded by Kelsang Gyatso in 1991. He's a Tibetan. It can also be found in the form of the international Shugdun or Shugdun community, although the NKT plays a rather cute game where they pretend they're not the same entity in order to maintain the purist beliefs, that they are non-political, whereas they quite clearly are. Monks and nuns make up the leadership of the international shugdom community, and in spite of them naming the front group International, it is primarily made up of white Westerners from the UK. Gyatso based the NKT at the Manjushri Centre in northwest England, which is a large, beautiful mansion house, which was pretty much stolen from the FPMT in the early 90s so the use of a legal loophole and quite a bit of bullying, which is a major and ongoing characteristic of this organisation. That centre once had the largest collection of Buddhist books in the Western world, before Gyatso arrived and started his puritanical pursuit of what he believes to be the establishment of the one true pure Dharma in the West. The only books you'll now find in all NKT centres are written by him. This is important because the NKT is the most sectarian Buddhist group in the West, and it employs a sharp form of exclusivism. They refuse to engage with all other forms of Buddhist. They refuse to engage with all other forms of Buddhism and other Buddhist teachers. And they suffer from a profound sense of arrogance, as they believe themselves to be the purest tradition and best representative of Tibetan Buddhism, renamed Kadampa Buddhism. This actually creates cognitive dissonance of the type that Stuart spoke of before, because their teachings in truth stem from highly orthodox Tibetan monastic gelug Buddhism. Gyatso actually claims, again and again, that Tibetan Buddhism is very degenerate and corrupted, and only he offers a pure, true form of it. In doing so, Gyatso represents a black-and-white reality in which he alone can save Buddhism from itself, and in which he alone can save Tibetan Buddhism from the Tibetans. It seems from multiple records that Gyatso has a problem with telling the truth and a major, major chip on his shoulder regarding the Dalai Lama. He was actually expelled from Sarah J. Monastery, and it seems he failed to complete his Geshe degree. The abbots and teachers of Seraje Monastery wrote an open letter stating that he is not a Geshe, and he never took his exams. Yet, he names himself a Geshe rather like politicians do in Italy, where they often go and buy degrees, made-up degrees for that matter, from Albania. Like many paranoid guru figures, Gyatso has spent a lot of time writing letters to organizations, for example, Inform, defending his story, even though the facts do not seem to add up at all. The NKT, though, is really an organization based on stories. Multiple crisscrossing tales that are fantastical, delusional, and often based on outright lies. This is most obvious in the hate campaign run by the NKT against the Dalai Lama. If anybody has seen images of political protests taking place during his visits, they are all organised by the NKT disguised as the International Shubdan Society, or community. These guys are quite disturbed and make up really sad stories, like the Dalai Lama is a Muslim, the Dalai Lama works for the CIA, the Dalai Lama oppresses people, the Dalai Lama is the worst dictator of the century. Jesus, really guys? The Dalai Lama engages in human rights abuses. That doesn't make sense. Not to anybody, I don't think, apart from NKT followers. In fact, when you start to look at the protests and the lies and fabrications that these people make up, you start to see the real similarities between the NKT and Scientology. The NKT attacks ex-followers and anybody that criticizes them. They love to make legal threats and claim libel. This is notable, actually, in their recent public campaign against the Guardian newspaper, which printed an article that didn't fit their narrative. They stormed down to the London offices and wasted everybody's time by protesting and shouting loudly, whilst not really saying much at all. They also engage in sustained Twitter attacks based on multiple false accounts. They also have sustained trolling and spamming campaigns against ex-followers, especially those who write against the NKT in increasingly large numbers. They've attacked Robert Thurman and produced these photoshopped images of him as some sort of demon, and they have the paranoid belief that anybody that criticises them is working for the Dalai Lama and lying. The worst thing, though, is that, like any good cult, the NKT refuses to engage with any outside criticism. It's insistence on its own stories. It's insistent that it alone represents true, pure Tibetan Dharma. It's sustained narrative that its glorious leader is the single most enlightened guru figure on the planet, the third Buddha actually, means that they cannot accept any other narrative that disrupts their delusional tales. This is extremely problematic because it means they suffer from many of the failings and cultish behaviours that Stuart mentioned before. The paranoid, reactive defensiveness, the refusal to consider any other viewpoint as possible means that they must at all costs defend their stories, and they must keep new followers from the truth, and old followers for that matter too. They must shout loudly and cover up and silence any dissent, even though we see more and more people, professional and non-professional, speaking against them. Just in case anybody thinks I'm being particularly nasty towards the NKT, and perhaps exaggerating claims, well, all of their claims about the Dalai Lama have been examined by Amnesty International, by the High Court in India, by academics across the spectrum, and no evidence of their claims of suppression of human rights or abuses have been found. So they continue to lie. They lie about freedom of speech, they lie about a lack of freedom of practice, and yet they are utterly and completely free to engage in Dorje Shugden practice. It's a very sad affair, and as Amnesty International recognized in their report, unfortunately all of these bogus claims distract real attention from genuine human rights abuses carried out by the Chinese against Tibetans still to this day. The problem, of course, is when a group that exhibits cultish behavior refuses to engage with criticism, there is no possibility for positive and effective change. The organisation cannot reform because it's enveloped in its own delusional narratives and outside reality cannot leak in. Like Scientology, when discrepancies are pointed out, the NKT tends to go into denial and offers up conspiracy theories. Gyatso also has a habit of rewriting history, another common tactic for cults. Negating all of his previous teachers' existence and influence, he erased praise of the Dalai Lama from his books, and he wrote out his actual teachers from the lineage. In Gyatso's Puritanical Reformation, there is only one line, the line he believes to exist. He alone represents a direct line back to Kappa. Dorje Shugden is transformed from a fierce spirit called upon to destroy other Tibetan traditions to a compassionate, loving Buddha. Even his claims of being in very long retreats on multiple occasions seem to be fabrications according to documentation and reports from ex-teachers and collaborators. This is just a sample really, and it's shared because it illustrates how fallible human beings are and how the fantasy of the guru figure so often contradicts reality. How the image of the guru is often a fairy tale, a sort of make-believe, which followers plug into, so they can become players in an elaborate theatrical performance. When a group moves towards the cult end of the spectrum that we described earlier, people identify with the roles they are playing. They take seriously the scenery. They believe their roles are a life or death situation in which playing perfectly will guarantee survival. The situation can be so tense, so crucial, so delicate, that any disruption of the play will destroy everything. You must remember your lines perfectly. You must play your part. That sort of environment leads to a lot of psychological and emotional harm, and that is what we see in a lot of ex-followers of the NKT. In particular, the monks and nuns who are expected not only to commit benefit fraud in the UK or offer up all their life savings, which I saw a lot of when I was involved with them, but to work extremely long hours for no pay, for little gratitude, and heaven forbid you should be fragile and broken like so many of those who end up in cults, because you will likely be spat out, as many stories by ex-monks and nuns attest to. NKT followers are usually extremely poorly informed about Tibetan Buddhism. They know next to nothing of the history of Tibet. They live in a puritanical bubble where doubt has no place, and smug certainty prevails. It's a house of cards though, man. The whole fascination with purity is rife in Buddhism, not just Tibetan Buddhism. We can see it in the attempt to find the original authentic Buddhism by going back as far as possible. Of course, all humans are failed beings to a degree. There's no pene- there's no perfection. There's no true purity. In fact such inhuman ideas are dehumanizing, often leading to the fragmentation of the individual, and the compartmentalization of feelings and emotions, of thoughts and human practices which are messy and don't live up to such high abstract standards. When cultish groups take seriously such abstract notions, they often push away, suppress or subdue much of their messiness or the messiness of our human reality. The NKT is truly guilty of this. We see it in their isolationism. If you ask an NKT follower why their organisation does not engage with any other Buddhist group or teacher, they will repeat a line written by Gyatso One teacher, one protector, one yidam. Which is to say, you don't need any other teacher, practice or truth. We have it all. Rely on us fully and you'll be fine. Have complete faith in your guru and you will be saved by Buddhism. Sorry Gyatso, it doesn't work like that. Another important thing is the ordination of monks and nuns, which often happens extremely quickly within the NKT. They have a strong expansionist policy, which is to say they proselytize believing that they represent that pure tradition and therefore are compelled to spread it as far and wide as possible. And this means exploiting all resources available. Apart from using narratives about accumulating merit and positive karma as a reason for why people should donate money, perhaps even give up their homes and life savings, they also exploit followers pushing monks and nuns who are highly inexperienced and very young and naive into teaching positions when they know almost nothing about Buddhism. The NKT gets around this by having a teacher training program which requires new teachers to channel Gyatsu, to channel him, to imagine he is speaking through their body and possessing them, and to read verbatim from Gyatso's books. These teachers have little experience in meditation, a very artificial, superficial understanding of Tantra, which again is pushed on to new arrivals. In fact, if you know anything about Tantric Buddhism, you'll recognize that pushing newbies into taking Vajrayana empowerments is odd when they have no knowledge or background experience of meditation. When questions arise for these new teachers, they obviously have no answers to. They are trained to respond with a number of bland Buddhist vagaries and platitudes, and refer to their glorious teacher, Kim Young, oops, sorry, Gyatso. Rather than represent some authentic Buddhism, whatever that means, they are parroting Gyatso's sectarian worldview. To end, here is a great example of double speak by the third Buddha himself, when Gyatso responds to claims that his group is highly sectarian and possibly cultish. Because, you know, everybody is saying this apart from his uncle, who never says much these days anyway, and recently has been seen lost wandering around in the vegetable aisle of Tesco's. Orwell would have fun with this, here goes. It is mixing different religious traditions that causes sectarianism. The ugly, unfortunate result of not understanding pure Dharma and of following misleading teachings that pretend to be pure Dharma is sectarianism. Huh? This is one of the greatest hindrances to the flourishing of Dharma, especially in the West. Anything that gives rise to such an evil, destructive mind should be eliminated as quickly and as thoroughly as possible. And you can tell from my tome that I'm not exactly neutral in my opinion about this group. While you were in that, in that
1: period of silence there, Matthew, I just, went in my, I just went in my drawer and I got a gun. So I'm going to quietly go and blow my brains out.
0: Stuart, that's a bit extreme for the Imperfect Buddha podcast.
1: Was that too much? It was too
0: much. Ah. Why don't you just cut off a toe or something?
1: <laughs> Shall I uh, yakuza my little finger? You shouldn't. Donate it to some charity. Yeah, I'll go and give it to Oxfam tomorrow. Good man.
0: Yeah, thank you for stopping me. I was starting to get into a rant. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you were. I could see the, uh, the tailspin developing, so I thought I'd that's jump right. in. Yeah.
0: Listeners, rants will be a part of the show on occasion. But that's why we're there. But it won't be a a diatribe. No, it won't. Diatribes, no. But it's also why there's two of us, Stuart. One of us can shut the other one up. (laughs) What what happens if we both start ranting? Well, people will stop listening and write complaints or something. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Anyway. the NKT. Let's, Let's cut the story short. I basically went through the list of 100 items, right? And I found that 54 are immediately applicable to the NKT. That is to say, I'm going to give you a few lists. X through, NKT you, follows. you counted through, what, 100 of those on that list? Yeah, so so I so counted. Yeah. So That's look, high. I'm going to give you a few just because, you know. So some of the factors that you'll find with the NKT are, and listeners, see if any of these resonate with you in your own experience with your Buddhist group. Number one, the guru is, guru is always right. Absolutely. You're always wrong. Absolutely. No graduates. Sure. Cult speak. Yes. Group think. Suppression of dissent. Enforced conformity, yes. Irrationality, suspension of belief, denigration of competing sects, cults, religions, personal attacks on cricket critics. On cricket. On oh, cricket. Critic sucks. It's boring. Even cricket. though he just won. <laughs> I need that gun. We all need attacks on cricket. It's boring. It's like Lama Ganshin talking about Shugden. Lama
1: Ganshen Oh, don't get me started. If you wanna if you wanna talk about cricket, get me talking about scorpions at some time.
0: Anyway, go on insistence that the group is the only way, the group and its members are special, unquestionable dogma, indoctrination of members, instant community, surrender to the group, no humor. Oh my God, this list. just goes goes on and on and on. And these guys are guilty of all these behaviors. All of them. Anyway, listeners, I highly recommend you go and find the orange list and tick off where your Buddhist group and affiliation has gone wrong. Stuart, save me from the NKT. Let's move on. Okay, Who's we going, next? We
1: going? We're going to Shambhala next, I think. Let's go to Shambhala.
0: Going okay. You're gonna talk about Shambhala, right, Stuart? But a lot of people That's are right. gonna go, oh my god. Shambhala? Oh. But
1: surely chug him trompa. He's sacred. We can't go near Chug him Trumpa. We
0: got his son, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Don't I'm not gonna go, why... I
0: don't wanna go down that road too much. What cultish behaviour does Shambhala exhibit? And what's your personal experience of it?
1: I'm gonna to need to rely on you, lean on you just lightly to if I start to tell Spin and rant, that you pull me out of it. So I spent a year, let's see, I volunteered for them. I was working in London for Cisco Systems and I left them and I went to volunteer for Shambhala. I wanted a change really. I wanted a change of just getting away from the desk. I wanted a change from uh, helping people solve their technical problems and I wanted something a little bit more simple, you know. So I went and I volunteered for them for just doing physical work for three months. That ended, I came back to the UK, then I went back and I worked for them for a year. So I ran the IT department, the audio and the video department for them for a year. So I really got to work with the staff and I got to see the participants, course participants coming and going, as you know, as well as to develop some good personal relationships and close personal relationships with the people that work there as well. As well as, you know, a handful of the people that, that came through and would come back repeatedly for, for courses. I'd look forward to seeing them because working in a land center can get a little bit weird sometimes. <laughs> what did I see off of that group? What the, the main thing I saw off of that group, I saw that the guru was always right. I saw that you were always wrong. I saw this isn't on the list actually, and this was one of my main gripes was a was kind of a very dumbed down, simplistic approach, a denial of any development of critical thought. I think similarly to the NKT, although maybe not to that extent. A lot of the books in the bookstore were Trugim Trumper's works. There were there was other stuff as well, and you could read from other traditions because Shambhala's a little bit more open than than maybe the NKT. But there was certainly a, a pushing towards reading heavily from just that tradition. And then the next one on that list would be group thinking, and lack of critical thought, and really just um painful, painful group thinking. Matthew, there are three main main pieces that I th- that kind of that leads to that. And, and within the, within the Shambhala, Shambhala Buddhist teachings, there's, they've got your hierarchy. So you've got a king, essentially, a mythical king, essentially sat at the top of the hierarchy, who's called the Sakyong or the earth protector. I don't have a problem with that particularly because there's a power dynamic within each, within human existence somebody's got a rule somebody's got to take the you know somebody's got to take that stand so i personally don't have a problem with that they they do kind of tend to use hierarchy in a in, in a sense of doing what the group or the majority rule approach is because the the teachings are kind of get sent down even an unconscious level i'm not social consciously but an unconscious level that it kind of comes down as a mandate it's coming down from a king right so uh, there's there's kind of that Something that that I have a grudge with, or I have a little bit of a something doesn't quite sit. I don't think grudge is maybe a little bit of a strong word, but is what they've got. Kassung, Matthew. Do you know what Kassung are? No. Okay, so basically the Kasung are the Buddhist military. Wow. Yeah.
0: Like uh, like ISIS.
1: Not quite that extreme. <laughs> they don't have guns. They don't carry. They don't carry, they don't carry knives. Okay, they dress like army, but they don't know martial arts either. So,
0: oh, okay. I remember seeing about these in a documentary about Trumper Yeah, they yeah. still exist then.
1: Oh yeah, they're very much alive and kicking. Well, what's yeah. the
0: purpose of this uh, this sort of subgroup?
1: So they are fashioned they fashioned after the the English or the British military because when Trumper would have been in the UK in the sixties, they still would have been pretty strong. You know, we'd only just lost our empire, so they would have, they still would have had a force. So he fashioned them after them before going off to the US. They first came into being, I think if I got my history right, they first came into being around the time when the Kamapa went to the US. They needed to have security. So they're basically security. They look after the Sakyong. He's got guys called Kusong that go around with him that are his own personal bodyguard but then the cast some of the the, the out, more outer levels of that they look after the program they make sure there's no bombs you know they do the basic security sweeps but they also do the stuff of um you know making sure that the you know there's there's no one on the road and but they also come it also boils down to the level of holding the container i hate that word matthew i don't think i've ever really expressed that on the show as yet to the level that i hate that word uh makes me think of a Tupperware box or a lunch box, but they hold the container of the program. So they make sure that everybody's in functional silence and, and that kind of stuff. Obviously there's a positive side to what they do, but there's a very quite a large latitude for controlling power trips, making people stay in line. Um, not to ask questions, and just to make sure that everybody's just being a nice little shambhalian and and behaving themselves properly.
0: Okay, that makes sense. So they enforce conformity?
1: They can do, even if it's silently.
0: All right, yeah, that's interesting. A lot of these sort of cultish behaviours are exhibited silently, as you said. I mean, you described that in your story before about nobody speaking up. Before we move on to somebody who's a rather negative figure, and although some people may find this surprising, he is. I'd like to tell you something about a rather unusual figure who you may not know exists. So as I was reading up for this episode, I came across a figure. You ready for this name? Brace yourself. You braced yourself last week. You're going to brace yourself again. I am I am braced. Okay. Have you heard of His Holiness, Toku Buddha Maitreya Rinpoche, the Christ, a.k.a. Ronald Spencer? You haven't heard of Ronnie... Not
1: unless you're talking about Ronnie Size, man.
0: <laughs> that was that was a nice mention of Ronnie Size from Bristol. That's our hometown, by the way. No, this is Ron Spencer, ex trucker the most enlightened superhuman that's ever existed on this planet. He's basically like the Buddha upgraded. Buddha upgraded. <laughs> Buddha upgrade, Buddha 2.0. My God, these these uh, these computer metaphors are so bloody annoying. Let's get rid of them. They're almost. We vow now. We vow from this day on <laughs> even to though, get enlightened and to stop saying 2.0. Even though they're almost impossible to get rid of. But anyway, this guy basically is in all all of the cult news and cult watch websites. He's a guy from California who's basically started up his own cult. I know that you have seen some of his shit. You saw it in Glastonbury in England, yes, the mythical Glastonbury. Do you remember those magic crystal wads?
1: Yeah, I remember them! That's
0: right. So for folks that are not listening, Stuart and I not only found Buddhism in the 90s and the peak of the New Age, we also went to Glastonbury on various occasions and uh, met some of those cult leaders and guru folks that we mentioned last time. We also came across... I'm not, I uh, will not admit to that. Uh, I'm I'm saying it, man. I'm I'm you know I'm dragging you out of the, the closet. Don't do that.
1: Tell people. Do not. Don't tell them. No.
0: No, we're we're laying everything bare. We're we're in, we're into transparency here. That's one of the uh. That's what one of the, of the one primary of the core... antidotes yeah. to cults is to mm. become transparent. Stuart and I hung out in one of these new age centers in Glastonbury, where they had these sort of metal pyramids and these crystal wands that were supposed to do things to your chakra and your aura and turn you into a sort of sexy, super enlightened dude. Some fools actually bought that rubbish, and that guy turned out to be an American. And he's got this cult going on in California. It's hard to believe that these places still exist. And he calls himself Buddha Maitreya. And if you don't know, Buddha Maitreya is the future Buddha, which means he's basically anyone you like, really. Anyone can claim to be him. He's got a magazine, which I think is wonderful. The magazine is called The Mirror of Society. How reflective are these groups of the superficiality? and sort of, you know, network of mirrors of modern-day consumerism. I don't think he realized that he was outing himself there.
1: That's an interesting... Yeah.
0: Yeah, anyway, maybe I'm just making this up. Who knows? But that's my thought on the matter. Anyway, he runs a therapy and retreat center in Mount Shasta, California. He's made a lot of claims. He He's one of those guys that knows how to use Photoshop, and he'll basically Photoshop images of himself with the Dalai Lama holding hands, and say, look... My faithful followers, I hang out with the Dalai Lama, so I must be legitimate. This is me with God. I want one of those. We should put one of those images up on our website, Stuart. I want I mean, five. Be I want five. You, you, you and I hand in hand with the Dalai Lama. <laughs> to get a little bit serious before we, we get lost in the banter, I think old Ronnie is a perfect example of one of the chronic problems of cults, which is the leaders are pathological liars. They don't know how to tell the truth. And one of the strategies which you mentioned is when they don't say the truth, they go into noble silence. Some of these guru frauds manage to reproduce silence when anybody asks them a decent question. They
1: call it noble silence. They do. They call it noble silence. It's
0: ignoble, basically a cop-out. He's got a sordid past like many of these folks. He's been basically uh, accused of theft, uh, sexual abuse, fraud, brainwashing. One of his latest victims has set up a website and he calls him a con man. In order to try and get some, some legitimacy, old Ron basically sponsored a group of Tibetan monks to come over to America. And he supposedly got rather nasty when they didn't follow his narrative. He invites them to his center. But when they failed to recognize his greatness, his holiness, when they failed to uh, acknowledge that he is the Buddha and Jesus, the Jesus, he basically drove them out to Arizona and dumped them there without any money. And this story was picked up by the New York Times because they were arrested. Check this out. They, they hitchhiked to Omaha, Nebraska, of all bloody places. And they were arrested by immigration officers in riot gear. <laughs> Talk about a shitty karma. Why?
1: <laughs> by police in riot gear? What were they doing? Well, you know, wrong? these
0: Americans, are, these Americans, hi American listeners, these Americans are crazy. Talk about overreaction. I mean, if they were Tibetans, they were obviously armed and dangerous and about to, you know release, you know, some sort of noxious gas in the environment. Anthrax, in their robes. Again, he exhibits some of the behaviours that we haven't mentioned just yet tonight. This is really, really important, Stuart, and you'll tell me if you've seen this in Shambhala. But in the NKT, this is, this is a staple of how that organisation runs. Long, unpaid working hours. That was, that was on my list.
1: Definitely, from my experience, definitely. They, I was at Dechen if if I didn't mention that, which is the European, which is in France, in Limoges in France. It's pretty hot there. It's, I don't think it's as hot as where you are, Matthew, but it certainly did get hot. And when I was doing the, when I was doing the physical graft of, of helping set programs up and long hours setting up tents and late nights setting up tents to the point where I was working, I went there to do sitting. But all I did was physical work. And every time I went to the shrine room to sit, I'd fall asleep.
0: And I, I had to pay for it. It was 5 euros, 10 euros a day. You forgot another point, Stuart, which is that you were part of a shared collective mission. Mm. And that gave it meaning meaning your life. Gave it yeah, meaning. Yeah, and gave you meaning. That's motiva- motivational. That's how to motivate somebody. Give them a reason. And of course, if you're working 18-hour days, you exclude every other aspect of your life. And again, you have to justify it by saying I'm part of something greater. Another factor is these very long teaching hours If you notice, this is part of Tibetan Buddhism in general, teaching for 8 to 10 hours. That puts you into a sort of state of zombification where, you know, no one in their right mind can retain that much information. Nobody has the stamina to actually pay attention for 8 hours. I mean, most people have about enough uh, attention to focus for 10 to 20 minutes. And if the teacher's boring, if the translation is slow and dull, you're basically being put into one of those trance states we talked about before. Mm And have you noticed how, I mean, certainly this is a factor of, of, of cults. They have very odd teaching hours, extremely early in the morning, extremely late at night. They tend to mess with your natural rhythms, which is another way of messing up the natural cycles of the day, which destabilize you and make you more prone to being manipulated or absorbing these sort of collective agreements about manipulation and group thinking, group conformity.
1: That's true. That's true. And sometimes you get Sometimes you get prima donna behavior like Chögyam Trungpa would do of getting people to show up first thing in the morning and not showing up until after lunchtime.
0: Think about this in with regard to um, Sakyong Mifam, projecting the guru's faults onto others and the demands that followers be pure while gurus are not. With figures like, well, somebody we're going to talk about now, I think, Sogya Rinpoche. In fact, I, I actually don't feel comfortable calling him Rinpoche. What's his full name? Do you know? I know he's Sogyo. Sogyo of Lakar. Lakar. All right, let's just call him Soggy. <laughs> Can we call him Soggy? I, <laughs> <laughs> let's call him Soggy, Stuart. We'll explain why. We're not deliberately out to offend people. But as far as Stuart and I are concerned, and I think I do speak for both of us here, we have zero tolerance for people who manipulate others consciously. We have zero tolerance for people who sexually abuse their followers, and we have zero tolerance for organizations that protect their glorious leaders in court. So we're both going to talk a little bit about Rigpa. Rigpa, as everybody knows, is an organization that's part of Tibetan Buddhism. Soggy wrote a book, or maybe he didn't, we don't know, called The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, which both Stuart and I read when it first came out, and we loved it. That possibly explains one of the reasons why we're not so happy about this this affair, Just like with the BBC documentary in the NKT, there was a Canadian documentary made about Rigpa, which which I highly recommend you all go and watch. It's called In the Name of Enlightenment. Basically, Soggy has been dragged into court by various ex-followers. No surprises here. They're all women. He's been accused of uh, sexual abuse. And one of those cases, his organization settled in court. They basically paid off this woman who was one of the first to reveal what was going on there. But if you watch the documentary, you'll see other other ex-followers of Soggy who basically talk about their experience of being sexually manipulated by this guy. They also talk about the fact that there's this all this cultish behavior that goes on in the group. There's a refusal to question the all-knowing master. The master is right, everybody else is wrong. There are a whole range of institutional failings there that have allowed this person to basically prey on young attractive women and use them to satisfy his own needs. And I personally find that utterly disgusting. And even though this is a podcast and we're just two guys, I feel it's important to make that point clear. And I think it's worth saying that the Dalai Lama protected Soggy. I think it's important to recognize that when these things come to light, if the leader is unwilling to apologize, is unwilling to admit their fault, and is most likely continuing with this behavior, we have a very serious, serious problem that needs to be denounced publicly and brought out into the wider discourse. Public and obli- that's what I'm going to say. Public obligation.
1: Yeah, it, was, it wasn't settled in court, it was, it was settled out of court.
0: Okay, so they basically paid her off, right? They
1: paid her off, yeah. I've got, yeah, got some more details on that.
0: I mean, apart from the fact that this goes against entirely against the, the, the whole meaning of Buddhism, the primary objective is to reduce suffering in the world. And when you've got these guys who basically induce and create suffering to get their jollies, it absolutely disgusting. It's unconscionable, it's
1: unconscionable man.
0: It's, it's it is fucking disgusting. Excuse my French. Here at the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, you can tell from the name, we don't buy into any of this idea of perfection. Soggy is a human being like the rest of us. As far as I'm concerned, if you're one of his followers and you ignore that in order to maintain your allegiance with that tradition and get your personal needs met, you've got a problem. If you want to
1: go and do that, and you want to you want to go and do that with with loads of con- with a, with a lot of consenting adults, whether you're male or female, I personally don't have a problem with that. If it's on the table and you're open and you're honest about it, fine. But if you're using something like Matthew says that's supposed to reduce the suffering in the world, that's supposed to help people, and it's supposed to help them get out of their uh, get out of the shit that they're bringing to the table, because why do people get into Buddhism? mostly i mean the reason i got in is because there was a lot of existential angst that there's no way that i could get at, and this is one way of adding some tools into the toolkit that i could actually kind of get at some of that stuff and start to release it and change it and loosen it up and work with it a little bit and get in there and work with it
0: it's uh it's unconscionable It's understandable as well that a bit of ranting takes place when we touch on these issues. They are open wounds as far as Buddhism is concerned, especially Tibetan Buddhism, and they are highly problematic issues that are delicate. And they're delicate precisely because there's a lack of transparency. There's a failing both on the leaders within those organizations to speak out, and there's a failing of the followers to react ethically and responsibly to what are legitimate claims. I mean, I mentioned the NKT before. The NKT has the highest number of websites dedicated to denouncing their practices by ex-followers. And what they tend to do is that they're basically engaging conspiracy theories. They basically publish their own websites in exactly the same way as Scientology to denounce those who are legitimately claiming cases of mental or emotional abuse. And in the NKT, there were also two, let's say, leaders there were two men who were both supposed to take over from Gyatso, and they both started shagging around and having sex with their followers. Now, they were forced in silence, of course, to disrobe, but one of them came back. I mean, the, the problem there is that, I mean, that, that's, that's a messy business because there's dishonesty, but there was no rape. There was no sexual abuse. What we see instead with Ripa is that if you watch the documentary, and that's where we're getting our information from, is any, if anybody is paranoid about all this, um, you will hear that there is genuine abuse taking place. And in both these stories, though, you see the same reaction: this um, absolute allegiance to the faithful leader, this this replacement of one's autonomy and responsibility with group consensus, groupthink, and the reproduction of the narrative and the discourse that's enveloped in that narrative leads, you know, what would normally be rational, intelligent, well-educated people to blank out these cases of abuse in order to justify their participation. In these organizations and to just justify acceptance of these dysfunctional roles and organizational politics. Nice. So, there we are, Stuart. We're speaking to the truth. We said we would, and we've done it. I've got some stuff
1: laid out that I wanted to just kind of put down. And when you look at Rigpa, they look like a decent organization. When I was studying in London, I went to Rigpa. They're on they're based on Caledonian Road. It's one of their first centres they set up there. I think we might have even Tracked up that way when we were in London at some point, but they look like they're a decent, upstanding, legitimate organisation. And I know you you spoke to Inform, didn't you, Matthew, that are based near the, or in the London School of Economics.
0: Inform basically had quite a bit of information about various organisations. The NKT was number one. And um, when it comes to Rigpa, they basically reaffirmed the fact that there were a lot of concerns about sexual abuse and the role of Soggy. Um, the fact that a lot of that information is in the public sphere now meant that a lot of people are aware of it.
1: Yeah, I th- but I think there's more to it than that. I think it's, it's more multifaceted than that. Personally, I was introduced to the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying in early 96. It was handed to me, and a couple of pictures that were in that were were pointed out with regards to his teachers. And that was my first introduction to Soggyal. So for me, it's one of the first Buddhist books that I read, I think. That along with uh, Shambhala, Sacred Path of the Warrior not knowing anything on the subject, it's kinda of, they're important books. So after a little bit of digging around on the internet, it would appear with regards to the Tibetan book Living and Dying that firstly, Sogio is not the real author. Two guys co-authored it, a guy called Patrick Gaffney and Andrew Harvey are most probably the genuine authors. And if you pick up a copy, as I picked mine up recently, have a flick through to the to the, you know, the commentary section, they're marked down as editors, not authors. Additionally to this, we'll talk a little bit about Mary Finnegan in a minute, but Mary has said that she's helped to launch him in London in 1973. Since then, she's Consistently spent 16 years tracking his exploits and has explained that he, he coveted the same setup as Trump or Rinpoche after meeting him in the US and spending some time in the US. That that happens and that ha- is happening. When Sokio was living in London, it became quite obvious though that he's firstly barely literate and that he never read anything except comic books, never wrote letters and spent most of his free time watching TV. So this isn't hearsay. We have links. We'll put them in the show notes so that you dear listener can tune in and look those up and do the do the groundwork and the research if you if you feel so inspired. Also in addition to this, Western teacher Nagpochogium or Nachang Rinpoche, which we covered in um episode 2.1, wasn't it, Matthew? That's right. He says the following. He says, The book was cobbled together from more than a decade of Sogyal's teachings and further commented that, I worked for a while on transcribing the tapes. There were a fair few mistakes, which I correct as I, w- as I went along, particularly about Dzogchen and precise definitions of Buddhist doctrine. That's shocking to me, considering the fact that the guy's supposed to be a legitimate, well-studied teacher, of Tibetan Buddhism, who actually has two years at Cambridge. Full degree is three. The fact that he has spent more time in the West than he spent in the East, and he probably has more of a Western education than he does of an Eastern education. Now, maybe I'm bordering a little bit on the flippant. Maybe I should back off from that a little bit.
0: And he's painted, as you said, as uh, as this enlightened, pure as representative. The, as the man, the face of Nyingma Tibetan Buddhism. Yeah. Yeah. So that's our opinion of uh, Sogi. It makes me think, actually, while you were speaking about the Catholic Church, uh, it's a whole edifice based on a massive interwoven set of illusions. The need to just continue to push the train onwards is greater than the ability of the members of that group to actually stop and think, do we really realize what's going on here? Talking about realizing what's going on, let's move on to one more chat before we draw this to a to a close. Have you heard of Michael Roach, Stuart?
1: The name rings a bell, but um, you're going to have to fill me in.
0: So, you know, I think like many people, I found out about uh, old Mikey boy when uh, he popped up in an article in the uh, Elephant Journal, which was written by an ex-follower. That story blew up and eventually got into Rolling Stone magazine and uh, the New York Times. And it actually was a story that was reported internationally. We we read about it in the Guardian over here. Uh, Michael Roach is an uh, ex-diamond dealer. He's uh, Jewish uh, by birth. If you have a look at some of his photos as a diamond dealer, he looks awfully like the first Joker from the Batman movie. like <laughs> Patrick Nicholson.
1: Um, uh, Nicholson.
0: Jack Nicholson. He looks just like him and he's got that same smile. Another photo shows him... <laughs> explicit phrase. It says spiritual gangster.
1: Really? Spiritual gangster?
0: Yeah, I think as the story goes has got, on... Has he, has, he got, has he got a diamond teeth grill? No, but I'm sure he's got a diamond watch or something. You think about those two images. Jack Nicholson as the Joker with that devious smile and spiritual gangster. We're probably going to see where this story unfolds. So Roach is still teaching. He's still out there, Stuart. It seems, and again, evidence can be found by going to the Rolling Stone, we're not making this stuff up, that Roach most likely bought his Geshe degree from a Tibetan monastery. He's actually a guy that's done a lot of good. It must be said, and that's a feature of all cults, by the way, a lot of people get huge benefits from them, which is why there's, there's this ambiguity again about how to define them.
1: This is sorry to sorry to jump in on you, there, Matthew. The um, it's one of the thing that that Jason Begay said in his interview. Actually, is that it's a real shame of what's happening because he says you won't find nicer people working in Scientology because these are people that genuinely have the heart. These are genuine caring people that actually want to get in and
0: and and kind of help. And well, you, you know, you will find them. You yeah. will find them. Yeah. You'll find them in Rigpa. You'll find them in the NKT. You'll find them in Shambhala. Absolutely. Yes, you will. Yes, you will. So that, that's the point. That, that's part of instant community and instant intimacy. That's one of those facets. And if we go back to the discussion we started with, that's one of the inherent problems of organizations and institutions. How do you get followers? How do you keep followers? You know, How do you remain valid? And one of the ways they do that is by cultivating these environments that are like honey traps. People get stuck inside them. And at that point, they're not only basically making a decision about whether they're part of a group or not, as the sociologies departments would say or the religious studies they're not only making rational decisions they've plugged into a community which provides immense emotional meaning support and uh, nurturing what lies underneath is people getting profound emotional and identity needs met
1: yeah i'd like to point and, i'd like to point something out and, and this is and i want to point this out while we're on the topic so that we don't lose it off this podcast is that when you look at the the nkt documentary of Kalsang Gyatso? talking he looks really dodgy um his body language looks seriously dodgy but i drew the i drew the the image in my mind and any star wars fans out there might he looks like greedo out of star wars you get shot by han solo if you want to go and look (laughs) that up you probably enjoy it but sorry i wanted to jump in there while that's fresh go on Matt.
0: star wars geeks enjoy needs to be done Good man. Somebody's got to take that role. Actually, saying that, it makes me think of another moment. Watching that BBC documentary, Yatso dribbles a lot.
1: He takes after his uncle then.
0: <laughs> oh, that could get us in trouble. Well, good. We don't care. <laughs> that's an honest... Bring no, it on. No, no, Bring an... it on.
1: I'm just, I'm just, drawing, I'm just drawing parallels. That's, uh, you, you are. Know. You're doing yeah, great. This that's is, what I'm uh, doing. This is creative journalism, Stuart.
0: Yeah. Well, folks, you'll have to excuse us, but <laughs> before we started this episode, we talked about how the hell are we going to say funny things about cults. Mm, it's
1: going to be depressing.
0: Yeah, especially when we were thinking about Sogyal. But the fact is that this is pretty funny stuff. It's dark and it's funny and it's twisted and it's human nature and here we are. But isn't, isn't, f- that,
1: isn't that where the best comedy comes from though? It comes from dark comedy. usually for me, it's usually the funniest stuff.
0: You're right, Stuart. My favourite comedian is George Carlin, who's dead now. Anybody out there, go and have a listen to his uh, clip about God. Think about it and enjoy I'm going to tell
1: on that and then we should get back onto that story that we've kind of open looped but um, also Louis C.K. which people just genuinely know but he took a lot of inspiration from George Carlin and he rips his shows
0: down every year and starts them from scratch and
1: in the same vein as uh, Mr. George Carlin there
0: So let's finish up this story nice and brief Michael Roach is worth mentioning because he's still out there He uh, set up an organization which was based on the idea that Buddhism can get you rich. Um, He's still traveling around Russia and China. He basically lectures and uh, sells his book, The Diamond Cutter, where you can basically get rich and wealthy from Buddhism. He buys into that whole thought manifestation nonsense, which is the idea that if you imagine it, if you believe it strongly enough, it will happen. So he's a sort of new age guru. He's got long hair. I think he secretly wants to be a rock star. He basically uh, created an organization which was extremely cultish, uh, which led to the death of one of his followers in the mountains. He basically married a woman called Christy McNally, who's still uh, missing in action. This was in the Colorado mountains, wasn't it? This is another feature. He got all of these followers to to invest all of their money in building this uh, retreat center for him, which he then sort of dragged them along and then left them sort of to their own devices. He married this woman and set up this sort of new age vow with her where they would stay within uh, no more than 15 feet for several years. He's just a disaster. I mean, this guy is uh, a sort of clear cut case of what not to do. Here's a quote, actually, that I, I picked up from Rolling Stone. And this is a nice little paragraph. It says, To his followers who know him as Geshe Michael, Roach is one of these rare beings, that is an enlightened Bodhisattva. They speak of a man who can walk through wars, see into the future, and some believe cast powerful spells against those who cross him. He is also a highly controversial figure who has rejected some of the orthodoxy of Tibetan Buddhism and modeled the practice to suit his own private purposes and goals, selling his notion that meditation is not simply the path to enlightenment, but to earthly love and worldly riches.
1: Deep, deep. My, my takeaway is uh, I want to learn to walk through walls, so I'm going to go and speak to this man.
0: Well, that brings us back. You know, there are themes that run through these. The uh, the men that stare at goats, Stuart. <laughs> they do. The goats are not going away. In fact, I've got a goat in the studio with me right now. <laughs> All right. So here we go. Last point before we close this up. Geshe, Geshe is not, not it's called him Mikey. Mikey travels the world as a business consultant, often draped in robes, teaching karma to Chinese businessmen, Russian oligarchs and their employees, and European and American entrepreneurs who want to know how Buddhist practice and precepts can help them to get and stay rich. Ancient wisdom, modern success is his motto. Well, fuck me, Stuart. If that's not a good point to end on, I don't know what is. You said it. Guys, we, we have uh, dragged you through an interesting episode. There is much more to say. We encourage you to read up on, Buddhist cults. We encourage you to think about whether your organization exhibits any culty behavior. In fact, Stuart, let's give homework for this week's program. Go and read the orange list. Tick off wherever you may feel your group is going wrong. Tick those boxes if you want to avoid encouraging culty behavior, well, all you have to do is start thinking for yourself, take responsibility for your actions, take seriously the critique of those who are outside your group. and Both Ripper and the NKT suffer greatly from that inability to accept critique.
1: That's right. I'd also add to that, learn to develop your own ability to deal with ambiguities or to deal with cognitive dissonance. If you're dealing with something in your life and it's just kind of driving you nuts, you know, or if you're working with something and you don't know whether it's, is it this way, is it right, is it left, you know, as long as you're not going to crash into a joke shop, make sure that you get your left side and your right, you know, is it right, is it up or is it down, is it left or is it right, is it black or is it white, just learn to deal with the the tension and holding the tension between those and that will allow you to in turn to kind of develop some critical thought and that's really essential in this whole process. That would be my takeaway if you would take anything from this podcast away.
0: Yeah, and consider the trade-offs you've made in order to stay inside a specific tradition. Cults or groups in general provide a lot of positives. Each person has to make a decision about where the line is between getting your needs met and being part of a dysfunctional collective that has to reform and change. Stuart, next episode. We've got 3.2, and that's going to be an interview. Uh, Our guest should be Tenzin Pellior, who's a German. He's done some great work in writing about some of the issues we've discussed, He writes about the failings of Rigpa, the NKT, and other Buddhist uh, cultish groups. This is uh, the end of the show. Comments can be made at SoundCloud or the Facebook page. Don't be shy. Show yourselves. If you don't like what we're saying, say so. If you do, say so too. See you next time.